Man goes on a hunger strike in order to force the town of Niagara on the lake to restore a black settler cemetery. Two deals inked with First Nations yesterday to give them control over child services. Canada is sending Ukraine 21,000 made-in-Kitchener guns. And Chile cuts its work week from 45 hours to 40. Good morning. It's Wednesday, April 12th. I'm Nora, and here are your headlines. We start this morning in Niagara-on-the-Lake, where James Russell has chained himself to a sign and started a hunger strike. He wants the town to pay $59,000 to restore 19 headstones buried in a cemetery that holds the remains of black settlers, reports the CBC's Desmond Brown. Last May, 28 burial sites and 19 buried headstones were identified by ground-penetrating radar. Today, the ground is lawn with just two visible headstones. A historical plaque at the cemetery reads, quote, Here stood a Baptist church erected in 1830 through the exertions of a former British soldier, John Oakley, who, although white, became pastor of a predominantly Negro congregation. A long tradition of tolerance attracted refugee slaves to Niagara, many of whom lie buried here, unquote. Russell is concerned that the headstones didn't sink on their own, that there must have been some kind of human intervention to cover them up. This is part of the reason for why he thinks that the town absolutely needs to do the work to recover the headstones and make the cemetery back to what it once was. And I can attest to the fact that headstones that old are still above ground often. I live not too far away from a cemetery with headstones from this time, and they're still there. Though, of course, very hard to read. The mayor of Niagara-on-the-Lake, Gary Zalepa, visited Russell briefly. Russell said, quote, he came and he spent half an hour explaining how poor the town is and how the town supports what I'm doing and that they're committed to restoring the Negro burial ground, but they just don't know when because they don't have the money. That was the entire conversation that took half an hour, unquote. The mayor's comment Quote, proper process and due diligence are essential to successfully restoring the site. Town Council understands the importance of this historic burial ground and is committed to a respectful investigation and restoration process that meets all legislative requirements. Unquote. Now to a historic deal signed by Kitchen Kusib in Inuwig, a First Nation located 600 kilometers north of Thunder Bay. You'll remember that I mentioned them about a week ago as they've been resisting platinum mining on their traditional territory for years and their leaders were jailed over this. Chief Donnie Morris signed an agreement with Indigenous Services Minister Patty Hadju to create its own family welfare agency. The agency is called Kitchenamekusib Ininuig Dibinjikuin Anakonikowin, which means KI Family Law. They are one of seven First Nations across Canada to have its own child and family services law with the full force of the federal law. The agreement is accompanied by $93.8 million to help implement the law and funding negotiations are ongoing with the province. CBC's Logan Turner explains that this has been a long time in the making. Quote, elders and community leaders had begun work to draft the law back in 2007, long before the federal government was talking about handing jurisdiction over child and family welfare back to Indigenous communities. At the time, leaders in KI were developing the law based not on federal legislation, but on their inherent right and responsibilities given to them by the creator to govern their own people, McKay said. That work was sidetracked when six members of KI's council, including McKay, were sentenced to six months in jail after they refused to allow mining company Platinex to start drilling on their land, despite a court injunction permitting the company to do so, unquote. 
After they signed the agreement, the community had a feast to celebrate. Now, KI was not the only Indigenous community to sign this kind of agreement yesterday, though it isn't mentioned in the CBC article. Global News reports that Loon River First Nation, Lubicon Lake Band, and Peerless Trout First Nation have come together to become something called the Founding First Nations to run their own child and family services system, too. Whereas Hadju was quoted in the article about KI, the Global article about the founding First Nations agreement quotes Mark Miller, Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations. He mentioned that it was unfortunate that Alberta is an intervener in a Supreme Court case brought about by Quebec to resist these kinds of agreements. Alberta has not committed yet to how much money they will fund the founding First Nations agreement. The article links to another article from the end of March that notes that 13 children have died, including three infants, while in the care of Alberta Child Services this year alone. It's a stunning stat that should have made national headlines, but frankly, I personally missed it. Maybe you did too. One of those deaths was Dejai Baptiste. He was just 11 years old and he committed suicide. Global reported that his mother was murdered a year after Dejai was apprehended and his father died not long after from an overdose. He also had two other relatives who had been involved in child services die, one after she had aged out of care and fell from a balcony and another who died in a group home. These new agreements are so important to bring child and family services back into communities and governments must give the requisite money and support to ensure that they can be successful. Now to national news and a department that seems to have no shortage of money. CBC's Murray Brewster is reporting that Canada will spend $59 million to buy 21,000 assault rifles and machine guns, plus ammunition. The purchase will be made from weapons manufacturer Colt Canada, and the weapons will be sent to Ukraine. You might remember also there is a $2.4 billion loan promised to Ukraine that has been dispersed. This is all happening on the tail of a meeting between Trudeau and the Ukrainian Prime Minister Denis Shmihal. The pair also signed a declaration, quote, on modernizing the free trade agreement between the two countries, unquote. Folks, I've been doing a lot of reading about free trade lately, and I got to be honest, it does not seem to do all that much good to protect local economies, which I think Ukraine could really use right now. But I know we only have like four policy instruments, so weapons and free trade. I guess that's where we're at. Anyway. There was also an agreement signed between Ukraine's state power company and Kamiko to supply uranium for nuclear power in Ukraine. Do you see how that works? Ukraine has a state-owned company, and we're just facilitating business on the behalf of Kamiko. Do they at least pay us for offering such consulting and brokering services? I don't know. Oh, and quote, the federal government also announced more sanctions on Russia and Belarus, unquote. Brewster's article is quite long and goes through all of the different things that happened as a result of this meeting of two prime ministers. And so I do encourage you to read it if you're curious. It goes into new intelligence information about Ukraine's crumbling air defense systems and how Yulia Kovalev, Ukraine's ambassador to Canada, spoke to the Canadian club at the end of March, saying that Ukraine will need help to rebuild. It's all interesting. Go ahead and read it. But what I thought was really interesting is that there's a graph embedded in the story that I hadn't seen before. The graph shows how much money Ukraine has received since they've been invaded. The U.S. has given a total of $104.9 billion, far and away more than anyone else. And only a small amount of that aid has been humanitarian. The EU is the second biggest donor. They've given $44 billion, but none of that money is military aid. 
And then the United Kingdom, they're next at $14.5 billion, with a sliver of the bar representing humanitarian aid. Canada is down below Germany, Japan, and Holland at $5.6 billion, and just $500 million of that sum, tiny fraction, is for humanitarian aid. Anyway, it'll be interesting to see where the weapons that we are sending Ukraine ends up in a couple of years. And finally, Chile has just passed a bill reducing the country's work week from 45 hours to 40 hours. It was passed with an overwhelming majority. This has been seen as a major win for President Gabriel Boric, who has not been able to get other priorities passed, like rewriting Chile's constitution, which comes from the era of dictator Augusto Pinochet. The law will implement a 40-hour work week over five years. That might be how they got so much support. That's a long time. While 40 hours is standard in many countries, Panama, Peru, Argentina, and Mexico all have 48-hour work weeks, while Brazil has 44. The bill prohibits companies from reducing wages with hours and allows workers to move to a four-day work week, reports Al Jazeera. It doesn't apply to informal work sectors, where more than a quarter of Chileans work, which is obviously a big problem and will likely make the jobs where workers have to work 45 hours a week or more even worse. Those are your headlines for today. It is Wednesday, April 12th. I'm Nora. I hope you have an excellent day.